Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, welcome to the Art of Charm podcast. I'm Johnny. And I'm AJ. In each episode of the Art of Charm, we strive to inspire conversation that will make you a more connected, more confident, and ultimately a more high-value human. Today, we're joined by author Jack Schaefer, who's called in from Illinois, and this episode you don't want to miss. Jack's background is fascinating. As a former special agent for the FBI's National Security Division's Behavioral Analysis Program, wow, that's a mouthful, he's (laughs) learned some great tactics for profiling terrorists and detecting deception. Now working as a psychology professor outside the battlefield, he's got a lot to share with us when it comes to getting people to like you for a minute or a lifetime. That's right. And Jack is driven to help people connect and build lasting relationships. In fact, his breadth and scope of experience made him a fascinating guest. Yes, it was really cool to see his experience from Battlefield merge into his personal. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. 
Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. A great place to experiment with things we teach on the podcast, like overcoming your fears, talking to strangers, and making those personal connections is in our free challenge group. You'll be guided to participate in quick and effective challenges to help you break out of your comfort zone. The group is safe, supportive, interactive, and facilitated by the AOC team. You can go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge to learn more. And without further ado, let's roll. We've reached the middle of our month on gaining interest, where we've been examining how to break the ice and how to talk to strangers. Creating that connection with strangers is definitely one of the most difficult skills for many people, I know ourselves included when we got started, as well as our boot camp participants. And we know of no better guest to help us navigate around this topic than Dr. Jack Schaefer, former FBI agent, psychologist, professor of behavioral analysis, and author of The Like Switch. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Schaefer. Uh, you're welcome, and I'm in, uh, happy to be here. Now, you teach students and members of law enforcement how to read people, spot deception, influence, attract others, and how to build better relationships. And it seems like you really just want people to get along. Can you pinpoint where this desire first came from for you? Was it something consciously passed down in your family? Well, I just remember as a kid sitting in the mall, just looking at people. And I was fascinated by human behavior. And I kind of built on that until I got an opportunity to join the police force and then the FBI and began to use that uh, behavioral nonverbals that I saw. I was able to use those uh, to my advantage when I was in the job. Would you call yourself a natural at reading people or is this a skill that you're really focused on developing? I think it's a skill that needs to be developed. And if you pay more attention to it as you go through the day, you get better at it. You know, there was something you mentioned there that I think a lot of people are missing nowadays. And I, I'm 44 years old and going to the mall as a teenager for me and being able to people watch was such a fascinating thing, you know, and, and and you're seeing so many different walks of life, so many people going about their day doing different things. And it was just a great place to observe human nature. And I, I got to agree, there's a lot going on there. And I think, you know, we're missing those types of places anymore. 
Yeah, because I think of modern technology, everybody's texting one another. If you sit in a mall now, you're, you'll see a few of them walk blindly into a water, you know, into a <laughs> fountain or a wrong way on the escalator. And there's a lot of different things I'd bet you see because we don't look at people anymore. We just look at our technology, our phones and text. Yeah, I know growing up, I saw my father's relationship dissolve and my parents got divorced. And then my dad struggled with getting people to like him and connecting with people. And with that, it had an impact on my life growing up. And that's what really sparked the fascination for me with how can I get better at this skill? It was something that I struggled with. I saw my father struggle with. Did you have any mentors growing up that taught you some of these things as well? No, I kind of self-taught. I I read a lot of books. I got interested in that, read a lot of nonverbal books, and then looked to see if they applied and used the, you know, the ones that applied and discarded the ones that I didn't think worked. When I had gotten interested in these types of, of topics, human nature and connecting and being able to communicate with people better, at the time, I was I was bartending and managing a bar in North Carolina. And what I was always fascinated by is I would learn some new ideas and, and be able to apply them that evening at work and being able to measure the results through my tips, through my earnings at the end of the evening. Where did you be able to practice these things and learn how to read these uh, this body language before it got to a point where it was quite life and death situations, perhaps in the FBI or police. Well, I think it's it's a lot of the things that, that are in the, the like switch are just things that people normally do when they interact with one another, when they become friends with one another. Those are the natural things. They're intuitive things that we do. So I think there's no one point where I realized that there was an advantage to this, except perhaps when I started returning merchandise that I didn't like, I made friends with the people that were at the complaint desk, return desk, and I found out I got a lot better behavior. <laughs> I, got, I got things returned. People were happier. Now, this concept of a, a friendship formula, a way to get people connected to you to start liking you, is a concept that we teach in the boot camp around this idea of propinquity. We start to naturally like things that we become familiar with. And what we thoroughly enjoyed about the book was your ability to break that down even further into these you know, four things that we need to pay attention to to really strengthen our ability for the other person to like us. Proximity, frequency, duration, and intensity. So with our concept of propinquity, we just kind of looked at it as, hey, you know, familiar faces over time can generate a massive amount of interest from other people. And, you know, thinking back to growing up, that girl you sat next to in your grade school class every day, you started to find really attractive, even if your friends were like, I don't know, she doesn't seem that attractive to me. So when we break it down in these four areas and you teach it to law enforcement, you know, what are those things that we should be paying the closest attention to at the start when we're start trying to get someone to like us? Well, the first thing we need is proximity. You have to be proximal to somebody before you can even start a relationship. And in today's world, we can call that virtual proximity if you want. But you, you have to be in connection with somebody before a relationship can develop. The other thing about proximity is Something you mentioned is if we see somebody every day and we're 
with them and we see them, we develop a mutual interest. Even if we don't talk to those people, we develop a mutual interest or like towards them. So that predisposes us to like somebody before we even open our mouths. Yeah. And in the book, you gave some great examples of going to the same place every day, knowing that the people you were trying to win over would frequent that place as well. Yeah. All you do is uh, you show up, you don't intrude on people's lives. You just show up and be proximal. And then they determine if you walk in with the friend signals and you display friend signals when you're proximal to other people, then they'll know that you're not a threat and they will display friend signals back and they'll know they're not a threat to you. And therefore that that's a predisposition to liking one another. Let's break down these friend signals. I know that you've piqued the interest of some of our listeners already. Well, the, the first friend signal is a long-distance friend signal, and that's an eyebrow flash. That's a quick up-and-down movement of the eyebrows. It lasts about one sixty-fourth of a second. When we approach people, we send out this long-distance signal that says, I'm not a threat. They, in turn, will return or reciprocate with a eyebrow flash that says, I'm not a threat either. And you see this most commonly in the workplace. When you pass one another on the, in the halls, first time you see somebody in the day, you go, hey, how you doing? The second time you see that person, you don't have to say, hey, how you're doing. What you typically do will eyebrow flash one another. Or in the case of guys, they'll do a chin jut. They'll stick their chin out. All we're doing is telling each other we're not a threat. Those are signals that say I'm not a threat. Yeah, it's that subtle acknowledgement of the other person. You're not ignoring them, obviously, and you're giving them an opportunity also to chat you up. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is it lasts about, you know, one sixty-fourth of a second. You don't even realize you're doing it. But once I tell people about the eyebrow flash, they go out and see it everywhere they go, and they come back and they say, my gosh, I, I can't believe that I've been eyebrow flashing people for years and they've been eyebrow flashing me for years and I just didn't realize it. I didn't, I didn't even recognize it. But once you recognize something like that, when you approach another person, now you can intentionally make sure that you eyebrow flash that person to send that right friend signal to predispose them to like you as you're approaching them. Yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, we see what we're looking for, and, and it's not until you bring that to a conscious level that you're able to see those things. I know for our work that we've done at, at AOC, it's not till we videotape our clients and allow them to see it on playback of all these certain behaviors that unconsciously they have been doing that may or may not have been hurting or helping themselves. Yeah, and uh, the second friend signal would be the head tilt. When we approach somebody, we want to make sure we tilt our head slightly to the left or slightly to the right. And what the head tilt does, it op opens up your carotid artery and exposes it. And when you expose your carotid artery, it shows that you have trust in somebody because they could attack your carotid artery and kill you within minutes. So what you're telling that person is, I trust you. And if you really want to see this displayed, Anybody who has a dog, as soon as you, you enter the home, your dog will sit there and typically tilt its head one way or the other, or they'll flip over and expose their underbelly. 
which is the weakest point of the body. What they're saying is, I trust you. You know, I, I don't see you as a threat. Guys run into this problem. You know, if you keep your head upright in a business environment, that's a good thing because it shows that you're dominant and that you're not going to be taken advantage of. But then they take that same lack of head tilt and they bring it into social environment. So the people that they meet then are looking at them as dominant, overbearing people. And they don't realize, how does, why does that person see me that as that and I'm not? Well, it's because they don't tilt their head. They're so used to doing that in the business world that they forget about converting to the social environment where you have to tilt your head. So these are like skill sets that you have to become aware of and use the specific skill set in a specific time and place where it's appropriate. And when we're talking about these signals, you're, you're talking about, you know, eyebrow flash that lasts, you know, a very minuscule amount of time. You're talking about a head tilt. As I'm listening to this, I'm thinking about the times I'm doing it unconsciously. But do you find that when we bring some of this stuff to a conscious level, it, it actually draws the wrong attention to us, like too long of an eyebrow flash? Yeah, or? a lot of people, once they discover they do eyebrow flashes, they try to mimic, you know, the natural eyebrow flash, and they don't do a very good job at it. And it, it looks like a uh, kind of creepy, actually. <laughs> right, like you're surprised by the other person, startled almost. So what you what you have to do is practice. Once you you get the feel, you say, okay, I just eyebrow flash. What does that feel like? And then you eyebrow flash again. What does that feel like? Pretty soon you get to know what it feels like to eyebrow flash. And what I did is I practiced walking down the street, eyebrow flashing people. And if I got a weird look, I said, well, that didn't work out. <laughs> so in a, in a non-threatening environment, you can practice and then develop that skill. So as we're approaching someone, having an interaction with someone, what we teach here at The Art of Charm is to make eye contact. And obviously with that eye contact, we can now start to work our eyebrows. A lot of our clients who have anxiety, you know, they're doing everything they can to avoid eye contact. They're nervous. They're thinking about their own internal thoughts and feelings. And when they start to avoid that eye contact, it, it makes them look unapproachable, uninterested. And with that, now we're falling in line with the eyebrow flash. The second thing right. we teach is this concept of neutral body language, positioning yourself to be side by side with the people you're interested in. When you lean towards one another, you lean toward things you like and you distance yourself from things you don't like. So if you want to give the impression that you like somebody, what you want to do is you can do all the introductory, the, the uh, friend signals, the, the eyebrow flash, the head tilt and the smile. And then when you get close to that person, you want to lean forward. And when you lean forward, that tells that person that you like them because you're leaning toward them. And we, we distance ourselves from things we don't like. So if we don't like a person, we're going to naturally distance ourselves from that person. This is where everything gets confusing for someone who said who may be a bit analytical or can overthink some of these subtle signs to where they're missing their basic meaning. Yeah, there could be misreading, but once you see the signs every day, you see the nonverbal signs, and then you know what's normal and what's not normal. You know, these things, you got to remember, are the things that we do every single day, whether we know it or not. 
These are the things we do when we interact with people. So it's an intuitive, natural thing that all people do. They're just not aware of it. And nowadays, the people that don't know about these social cues have a difficult time talking to people because they haven't learned those cues, either because they're too busy with technology or they just, I have a hard time reading those skills. When I was a kid, we'd be playing with other kids in the the ballpark and mm-hmm. and stand lots, and we would be reading each other's social cues because we were with people every single day. So it wasn't that much of a problem. Nowadays, it, it seems to be more of a problem. Do you find that for those of us who are working on improving our ability to read and project these skills, that there is a pronounced learning curve when we overanalyze? Yeah, there's, there's a learning curve, but you got to remember these are instinctive things. Once people learn these things, it's very easy to adapt them and become friends with people. And, you know, I find this in the, the dorms at uh, Western Illinois University where I teach. The students come up and say, I don't have any friends. I'm too shy. So I say, well, if you don't want to go out and meet people, why don't you get people who have your same interests meet you? And they go, well, my gosh, how do I do that? Well, the first thing you do is you open the door to your dorm room. So when people walk by, they can look in the dorm, your, your room. And then you want to put things you're interested in. For example, if you're interested in the NASCARs or football or you have a favorite team, let's say you have the Chicago White Sox, your favorite team. So what you do is you put sports pictures and memorabilia and sports logos, pennants, on your room where people can see it. And so what happens is anybody that's a, a, a Sox fan will look at that and be interested in and attracted to go in and, and say, hey, you, 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 you're a Sox fan or a NASCAR fan or whatever pursuit you like, whatever interest. Those people who do not have the same interests you have will automatically just go by your room without thinking about it. So what you're doing is it's a kind of a self-selection process. So the only people that are going to talk to you are the people that are interested in the same things you're interested in. So it's just a matter of learning a few techniques. And I remember one student says, you know, I I made a lot of friends because of that. And we all have the same interests because they use that technique. You know, it can be difficult for some of these uh, younger folks who haven't had much experience in expressing themselves and putting themselves out there. For instance, you know, to allow that to work, someone has to get comfortable about their privacy issues, leaving the door open. And then in a world that's full of this now outrage culture, to be able to to exhibit things that they're interested in or they, they like for others and not have to worry about any sort of backlash that comes with that nowadays. You can't put anything obnoxious in your dorm room. <laughs> I mean, what you want to do is, this is just a simple matter of getting two people together who share the same interests. And the person that's shy, you tell them, open the door. Force yourself to open the door. And once you open the door, people can look in your, door, your, your dorm room. And you have them look in your dorm room. They see things that they're interested in. They're going to typically stop by and say, yeah, go socks or go whoever you like driving the NASCAR. And then you go, yeah, yeah. And so the next time you see that person, you, you know that they share the same interests. 
And the next time they go by your room, they'll, they'll more likely stop in to talk about the shared interest that you have. Yeah, I love that idea of opening the door. It's similar to what we're teaching in our programs when we're out being social, right? Wearing a piece of clothing that expresses a bit of your personality, if it is a, a Red Sox hat even, right? Other Red Sox fans are going to notice that. But a lot of our clients who are introverted and struggling with social anxiety, they try to hide. They try not to make themselves visible to open the door, so to speak, to that approach, to that conversation that other people are interested in having. And when you can prime the pump a little bit by sharing interest with someone, well, the conversation is a lot easier. So for the single listeners or the listeners who are moving to a new town and struggling to make friends, you know, finding that meetup group where there is a shared interest, it could be a hobby of yours. It could be a sports team that you like finding where, you know, Johnny loves the Steelers here in Hollywood. There's a Steelers bar. These little things to set yourself in the room with that similarity can allow that conversation to happen easier than you know, closing the dorm door, closing the door to that opportunity. Yeah. And I call those things curiosity hooks. Oh, nice. Like you mentioned, you mentioned a hat with a logo on it. That's a curiosity hook. You wear a a button or a brochure, you know, a little, whatever you wear on your clothes nowadays, logos, your t-shirts, that's telling, you know, those are curiosity hooks and people respond to curiosity hook. Even strangers respond to curiosity hooks. Now, last month we talked a lot about first impressions and how to set a good one and this whole idea that first impressions are indelible, they're very hard to change in someone. Obviously, with your expertise, I'd love to hear strategies that you have when you know you've made a bad first impression, but you have to win this person over. I'm sure in law enforcement training, if you get started on the wrong foot and the mission is to win this person over, there's got to be some strategies employed to change that first impression. It's difficult to change a first impression. The only thing that you can do to change a first impression is is you have to time out. You have to meet that person so many times that they finally realize that their first impression is wrong. That's why it's very, very important to make a first impression. Because that first impression serves as a filter through which they see the other person from that time forward. So if we started off on the wrong foot, and it is very hard to change it. Is there anything in particular that you're doing to really reinforce the positive impression you're going for? Well, the thing that I do, and a lot of times I get off on the wrong foot with a with a suspect. All I do is walk in and say, well, I guess that didn't work out very well, did it? <laughs> so owning it, calling it out. Yeah, one example, <laughs> I was chewing gum in an interview with this guy, and I just first walked in the room, I'm chewing gum. And the interview had was my, my partner started the interview a few, minute, few minutes earlier. And the suspect gave my partner a business card and he laid it on the table and I'm chewing my gum and it's time to take the gum out and throw it away. I didn't know what to do with it. So I, unbeknownst to me, I picked up that business card, put the gum on it and folded <laughs> it in half. And then I asked the, the suspect, what do you do for a living? He says, I don't know. You got it in your hands and gums in it. Well, obviously that wasn't a good first impression. So I just looked at him and laughed and I says, that didn't go over very well, did it? He says, no, you insulted me. And I said, then that's when you have to go into the, the repair mode when you uh, insult somebody. 
And usually empathic statements will work for that. So let's break down empathic yeah. statements for the listeners who haven't caught up in your book yet. And and we love these. Yeah, these great. are really powerful ways for you to be in tune with the other person. And it creates this reciprocity that I think is really remarkable. Well, the, the, the empathic statement is where you take what that person says, does, or feels, and you put it into different words, and you, you mirror back how that, that person feels, what they said, or their emotional status. So I looked at that guy when, when I folded up his business card with my gun inside, and he just looked at me, and I went, Wow. That was a big mistake, wasn't it? Or you don't feel too good about that? <laughs> and the, of course, the answer is no. And then you can move forward from that by accepting, by like to say, own it. All you're doing is with an empathic statement is you're putting the focus back on that other person. And when you put the focus on that other person, that person feels good about themselves and they're going to like you more because you make them feel good about yourselves. That's the that's the uh, golden rule of friendship. If you want to make friends with people, you want people to like you, then if you make them feel good about themselves, then they're going to like you. So we want to make people feel good about themselves. Yeah. So we talked about the body language signals that get our foot in the door, so to speak, and can start warming people up to us. But now we want to start building relationships and everyone wants to be likable these days and everyone is focused on getting that interest from other people. So when we talk about making people feel good about themselves, empathic statements are one of the ways that we do that. Are there any other strategies that you employ? Yeah, if you ask somebody to do you a favor, then they're going to like you because when you ask somebody to do a favor for you, it's counterintuitive. You would think that I would like you more if I asked you to do me a favor, but that's not the case. Ben Franklin figured yep. this out long ago. And he said that if you ask somebody to do you a favor, they're going to like you more because how do you, how do you feel when you do, do a favor for somebody else? You feel good about yourself. And that goes back to that golden rule of friendship. You feel good about yourself, then you're going to like that person. If I make you feel good about yourself, so you don't have to like overdo it. You just say, hey, can you do me a favor? And anytime I ask somebody to do something, I always preface it with, can you do me a favor? Because that increases the probability that they're, they're going to do it for you. And that goes back to that third. We forgot about the third friend signal, and that's the smile. And that's very, very important. Because when we smile, we release endorphins. And endorphins make us feel good about ourselves. So the golden rule of friendship says if you make yourself feel good about, if you make other people feel good about themselves, they're going to like you more. So if I smile at somebody, they're going to get a shot of endorphins, and then they're going to feel good about themselves, and then they're going to like me more. So the smile is very important, and it has to be a genuine smile. So if you're not up to a, a real smile, just make sure that you scrunch up the uh, crow's feet around your eyes because the other person's brain is going to pick up on that signal that says that's a genuine smile versus a fake smile. Yeah, we do video work with our boot camp participants where we're filming them interacting. And a lot of people internally feel like they're smiling more than they are externally. 
We work with a lot of special forces and military guys who have this very stoic processing face where they're getting the information, they're calculating everything as they're listening to someone, and they do not have this smile on their face. In those situations where you've worked with law enforcement, where the uh, person you're training does not have that smile naturally, has more of that resting bitch face or that processing face, uh, what are some strategies that you ask them to employ to craft a more genuine smile? You have to get them to practice smiling at people. I mean, it, it's, it's, it all comes down to practice. Sit in front of a mirror and practice smiling. You could think of a joke and look how look and look how you smile. Once you you like you crack a joke and people genuinely smile, you can show them that video and say, "Look, this is how you naturally smile. I want you to mimic that or or mirror that back to me when you talk to people." Because if you don't issue that smile, people aren't going to like you or they're, they're going to have a tendency not to like you. One of the strategies I like to, to employ for, for our clients to look at is to see everyone as basically a mirror. So if you're walking and uh, up to people, perhaps maybe you go to the mall and you're going to go chat with the people who are working in the stores and practice a smile. If you immediately go up to them and they immediately just smile back, then you know that you were smiling at them and you can check off that box. It's a, it's a good feeling. If you're talking to many people and they don't put on a smile or they just seem to be just a even kill and in interacting with them, then you can be sure that you can pick it up a bit. Uh, everyone's going to reflect how you engage with them, especially folks who are, who are working. Yeah, there's, there's a couple tenets that you brought up, and one of them is the smile. Once you smile at somebody, it's very difficult for somebody not to smile back. Exactly. So if you smile at them and they smile back, then you know that you've issued a good smile. The other thing is mirroring. The other way that we can tell whether people are in good rapport is if they mirror one another. And initially, when you meet somebody, you want to mirror them to let them know that you're in rapport with them. But it's difficult to say, how, how do I know rapport has been built? Because in the law enforcement world, we don't typically ask those dirty deed questions, the hard questions, unless we know we have rapport with our suspect. But if we're mirroring them, and then how do we know that we're in good rapport with one another? And it's easy. It's called lead and follow. What you want to do is you want to change your position. And if that person changes their position to mirror you within 10 or 15, 20 seconds, then you know that you have good rapport. You know, it's great to know that there's some beautiful strategies that go along with this. I think a lot of people have a romanticized idea of what interrogation looks like. And you just you get, them, get them under that light and you go in there and you give them the business a little bit and then they'll start talking. <laughs> but it's actually a little bit more subtle than that. <laughs> that, that is not how it works. Believe me. <laughs> Only on TV. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very interesting, you know. We, again, going back to this idea of neutral body language that we espouse so much of getting shoulder to shoulder, getting more comfortable with the person you're interacting with versus facing them, which is far more adversarial and confrontational. And naturally, everyone's radar goes up when someone is, in, is directly facing them, exposing their abdomen. 
so we find that we tend to close ourselves off when we feel like we're getting all this pressure and tension from the other person. Is that something similar that goes on in these interrogation settings? Are you focused on your positioning with the suspect? If I'm going to interview a suspect, I'm, and it's male, a male suspect, our chairs are not going to be facing one another. They're going to be a slightly askance because when we are face-to-face, that's, a, that's a, uh, an anger position or stress position for other men. So you don't want to do that. So you want to sit a little askance. The opposite is I usually use for women, and women like to sit face-to-face. So with a woman, I'll sit face-to-face. With a man, I'll sit slightly to one side or the other. And then what we do in during the interview process to increase or decrease the intensity of the interview, with a male, I'll slide my chair directly in front of him, and that'll increase the intensity of the interview. And then I can move closer to him to increase it even more. And then I want to move the chair backwards to lessen the intensity. So I want to reward good behavior and I want to punish bad behavior. So in order for me to punish that person non-verbally for not talking or telling a lie, I will scoot my chair up very close to them and then they'll become uncomfortable, which is a punishment. And then when they start telling the truth, I'll back off. So they get a reward for telling the truth and they get punished for not telling the truth. I love that. And it, yes. it again goes back to our focus when we're trying to socialize with people. If we position ourselves in confrontational situations with men, well, obviously the tension's going to arise and they're not going to like us. And it's so interesting that you point out that women actually like that because for us, when we're talking about our male clients who are trying to determine whether or not the female they're talking to is interested, being in that neutral, that side-to-side position and giving her an opportunity to turn positive to face you, to become face-to-face is a great way for you to judge her interest level. I've taken classes to bars and seen this phenomenon. What typically happens is a man and a woman are sitting side-by-side at a bar. You know they don't know each other, it's obvious. The male turns to her and starts talking. She turns her head and starts talking. And then they start smiling. And then there's some laughing. And laughing causes endorphin release, which predisposes the person to like you. And then all of a sudden, their shoulders turn. Then their torsos turn. Then their whole body turns, and they're facing one another. That's a good sign. But in some instances, we see where... The guy will turn to the girl and she'll turn her head to him and say something. And then he'll keep going and she'll pick up a purse, put it between them, you know, and then as a blocking barrier. And then she'll eventually, if he gets persistent in one case, she actually turned her back to the guy when he was still talking to her. And there's a clue there. Yeah. (laughs) Disinterested. Yeah, you can look at you can look at those nonverbals and pick them up very quickly. Another way when you're in a, a restaurant or on a first date to know if you you have good rapport with the person is with it, looking at a, a glass or a cup. And that's one of the reasons I give cups and coke and cans and things to suspects is to it, determine whether I have good rapport with them because Once you have good rapport, 
they're going to remove any barriers between the, t- the two people. They're going to people remove barriers between them if they're in good rapport. So I look at the suspect where he places his can or his coffee cup. If it's directly between us, I know that rapport has not been established. So I continue developing rapport. And then at some point, I see the suspect take a drink out of the coffee cup and put it to one side or the other side, removing that barrier. Then I realize now we have rapport with one another. You can do the same thing in restaurants. We often see that when couples sit down, what's the first thing they do? So they take the anything that that's between them, the condiments, the napkin holders, anything, and they push it to one side. So they want direct face-to-face. The second thing they do is they lean towards one another. The third thing they do is they touch, and then they whisper. And those are all signs of intensity in that relationship. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Jack, I was curious. So when you're training the the officers and the other the members in FBI for things such as interrogation or dealing with with uh, people that you're you're questioning, obviously you're going to want to zero in on all sorts of subtle behaviors because I'm going to guess these things need to be put in a in a report. Well, he did this, so then I countered with this, and then I got up to open up a bit, so then I went into this line of questioning. So they have to focus on positive behaviors and negative behaviors. Now, what we've seen is that when in training uh, people who are just looking to get better socially and connect with people, if we have them focusing on the negative they're going to see every negative thing in the world that they need to break rapport or to retreat or get out of that situation. If we have them focusing on the positive things, they're going to see all of those things that allow them to feel good about the interactions. I was curious of, was there any techniques or anything that you would use with your people to have them not get sucked into too many of the positives or too many of the negatives and see them as, as equals as, as nullifying behaviors? Yeah, well, what we typically teach is competing hypotheses. Okay. And that is, I walk into the interview room, I say, my first hypothesis is the person is lying to me. My second hypothesis is the person is not lying to me. And then I look for support for either hypothesis. And by the end of the interview, the weight is going to be on one side or the other for one hypothesis or the other. And you got to remember, the reason I say weight is that Honest people sometimes say things that make them look dishonest. Sure. And dishonest people often say things that make them look honest. So it's the totality of the negative and positive signs that you can tally up at the end of an interview. And that keeps people from falling into that first impression 
where you think that person's guilty and everything he says and does is guilty and that's all you see. Now, you, you touched on humor having an even larger release of endorphins when we're laughing with one another. And we teach that in our course that introducing humor as soon as possible creates that likability in people. It breaks some of that tension that we're feeling around meeting a stranger for the first time. Is that a similar technique that you're using in the FBI? Are you, are you utilizing humor with the interrogation suspects? Oh, I like to, inter- you know, a lot of agents don't like to introduce humor, but I do because for, for several reasons. Humor re- releases those endorphins and it makes that person predisposed to like you. And the other thing in the in the private, you know, social se- uh, sector, you know, there's some research that shows that women, the, the thing women find most attractive in men is the ability to make them laugh. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because if I can make the other person laugh, they're going to like me. And and the more I can get that person to like me, the more likely they are to come and see me again. Because if I can make a particular person like me and I make them feel good about themselves, they're, they're going to want to come back and, and get that same good feeling again. And a lot of times you don't even have to ask that person to come back. They're going to come back automatically because they want that good feeling again. They'll think of any excuse they can to come back and see you. So with shy people, what I do is to say, if you can get the other person to feel good about themselves and laugh and introduce some humor, then they're going to find an excuse to come see you. You don't have to really expend a lot of energy to go see them. But humor is dangerous, though, because what's funny to me is not necessarily funny to you. And there's nothing more detrimental to a relationship, especially if it's a new one, is a, a bad humor. So what you have to work on is self-deprecating humor, because if it, which means that you're making basically you're poking fun at yourself. Nobody's going to make an argument or feel bad if you poke a little uh, fun at yourself good naturedly. Yeah, that good natured is the the tricky part for some of us, though, right? If we focus on self deprecation and we overdo it, then we can actually lose status and value in the other person's eyes and reinforce negative things about ourselves. Right, and and here's the I think here's the balance you have to strike. No one tool works for all circumstances, but for all circumstances, there are tools that work, and it's the time. And the circumstances that dictate the tools that you have to use. So I tell agents, I'm going to give you a whole toolbox of tools, but you just don't pull out any old tool. You pull out the tool that, that's fit for that circumstance. If you've got a Phillips screw you want to put in, you take out a Phillips screwdriver. And when it comes to making people feel good about themselves, another technique is the compliment. And I find that this is very similar to that humor thing where if we don't give a genuine compliment, if we give a canned compliment that doesn't feel like it's coming from a a positive place, it can work against us. When it comes to teaching your trainees how to give compliments, is there something in particular that they should be focusing on to compliment? Yeah, most people, when they're directly complimented, are are. What does that person want? But what I like to teach people is you allow other people 
to flatter themselves. In other words, what you do is you set up a situation where somebody can pat themselves on the back and feel good about themselves, not because of you directly intervening, but them complimenting themselves. Like, for example, if I'm in the elevator in the going to the classroom and uh, I see a student who looks very happy, the first thing I'm going to say is, Oh, you look very happy today. Things must be going your way. And they'll go, yeah, I just passed a test. And I'll say, it's really, it's really feels good when you study hard and things work out. And that's not really a, a compliment to them, but they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I studied really hard and it did work out. Let me give myself a pat on the back. So you're giving them that opportunity then to find the compliment for themselves. That's Fascinating. To flatter, them, to flatter themselves. And nobody's going to miss an opportunity to flatter themselves. <laughs> right. I mean, that's not going to happen. And, you know, even I get victimized by that because I was teaching class once and a student, this is when I was ABD, all but uh, dissertation. So I was, I didn't have my, my PhD yet. So a student in the back raised his hand and said, Dr. Schaefer, let me ask you a question. And that's the first time anybody's ever addressed me as Dr. Schaefer. And I, I paused there and I thought, well, that feels pretty good. <laughs> and, you know, I was kind of reveling for a few seconds, nanoseconds in that, you know, wow, you know, that's good. Yeah, I worked hard for that. And I finally, you know, I got the degree. Somebody's calling me Dr. Schaefer. But another girl on the other side of the room, she said it just like this. She said, Dr. Schaefer, how does it feel? And I said, I looked up and realized what was going on. And I said, it feels pretty good. So what was I doing? That student actually, what, allowed me to pat myself on the back for my, my hard work. And I forgot I had, teaching, I had taught that technique earlier in the class. So it got used on you. Sure, it gets used on me all the time because it's natural, isn't it? When, when I say, you know, 98 million people look at your podcast. That's amazing. It must take a lot of hard work to get that many downloads. And you're automatically thinking to yourself, yes, it does. And I put in the work. I put in the hours. You're patting yourself on the back. And you feel good about yourself. Or I could just say 98 million downloads. That's impressive. And that would be enough to allow you to flatter yourself. Yeah, and our training, we focus on the personality-based compliments more than the physical-based compliments because to your point, a lot of people are leery of someone who just comes up and compliments them like, oh, this person wants something from me. When you can compliment them on a personality trait, that has a little more reinforcement versus, oh, great haircut, Johnny, or nice smile that anyone can tell them. Yeah, well, I, I steer away from those, those types. Of, I mean, you can do them. Yeah, but I steer away from those. I just allow people to flatter themselves. I said, you know, people with great sense of humor, they're really they have great personalities. And that person knows if they have a great sense of humor. There's just a lot of different ways. But you know, you know what it comes down to? You gotta make the effort to put the focus on the other person. And you know, the golden rule of friendship is so so easy and it works one hundred percent of the time. If you want to make people feel good about themselves, or if you if you want other people to like you, you make them feel good about themselves. 
But what stops us from doing that? And that's our ego. Everything we think is self-focused. Like you think the world revolves around you. Well, you're wrong. It revolves around me. And so everything is self-focused. The hardest thing people have in using a lot of these techniques is focusing on the other person, putting them first. And you know what the, the ironic thing is? If you get someone else to like you, they're going to go out of their way to help you. Absolutely. In your situation, not because they have to, because they want to. We want to help people we like. We do not help people we don't like. Now, are there lesser known ways that we can make the other person feel good about themselves, uh, especially non-verbally? We covered complimenting and we covered using humor. And Well, we can use open body language. You can use uh, the uh, leaning, inward leaning. You can look at that. Another way that guys can tell if a girl likes them is if they're sitting there and the girl kind of nonchalantly touches them on a knee or or their uh, upper arm, and it's just a slight brush, that means that there's good rapport between them. It's not an invitation to have sex. It just says, I like you. Right. So you can pay attention to those things. Another, th- another way is if, uh, a girl, you know, fixes your tie or takes a piece of lint off your clothes. That's called preening. We preen people we like and we don't preen people we don't like. So these are ways, subtle ways you can tell if somebody likes you or not. Now, I want to unpack these empathic statements a little further because they are so powerful. And I especially love the example in the book because we've all been there where we're sitting in a busy airport. Things are not going our way. It's a stressful situation, both for you as the passenger, but also the airport employee, staff member. And the book example allowed you to get upgraded. So let's unpack what's going on behind the scenes with this empathic statement because we really see it. Three things are happening. We are engaging in a pattern interrupt. So most people in those situations are not expecting you to give that empathic statement. The second is there's that compliment component of it, this recognition of their thoughts and feelings and their emotional state. And then the third part has this layer of reciprocity into it. Once this person starts to like you, then as you said, they're going to naturally feel that they need to do this favor for you. They need to help you out. Right. Reciprocity is very important. And uh, Cialdini came up with the theory, uh, I don't know, a number of years ago, where that human humans want to reciprocate in like to other the way they're being treated. So if you treat somebody a certain way, they're going to reciprocate in a certain way that's similar to the way you treated them. And Waitresses can use that technique to get bigger tips because if you give somebody a uh, receipt with a smile on it, you know, the smiley faces we get on all those little receipts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a reason. There's a reason. Or they'll drop off a, a mint along with the check. So they're giving you something. And our human nature is that we're going to want to give back to them in like kind, or in this case, a bigger tip because we like that person. So there's a lot of subtle subtleties to this that people employ. And one of the ways I like to teach people is, you know, if somebody does something for you, you say, yeah, you know, they'll say, thank you. Say, no problem. Instead of saying that, 
what you want to say is, I know you do the same for me. And so what that does, it sets up reciprocity. So if my friend does a favor for me, or I do a favor for my friend and he says, thank you, I said, no problem. I know you do the same for me. I like that. That's great. Which sets up which sets up reciprocity. So that when I ask my friend to do me a favor in return, the probability goes up that he that he or she will do it for me because of the reciprocity. Well, you've said so much in that statement. I mean, you were coming back with how much you appreciate your friend and the and the and the friendship that you guys have shared for a long time, you uh, you see the the best in that person. I mean, that's a very powerful statement to return on a thank you. And I know a lot of times uh, we get the question of, you know, how do you get comfortable with taking uh, compliments or, or thank yous? The best way is to say thank you. Somebody will pay me a compliment. I'll go, thank you. <laughs> I love the the point we're making in all this is is taking the time and energy to care about other people, right? It's so easy in today's society, especially with social media and all the focus we're putting on ourselves and getting likes and getting other people interested in us. It's hard to break out of that and view something from the other person's perspective and have that empathy. And, and you have a great acronym in, in the book, this CARE acronym. It's great. And the quote of caring allows us to reach higher elevations of relationship growth. And the letters spell out the word that also tell us what we need to do to care effectively. So I'd love to wrap today with just breaking down this CARE acronym. We love our acronyms here. I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with the CAKE equation acronym that we employ. So what do you mean by CARE? Okay, so with CARE, C is that compassion or concern. What that basically means is, you put the other person what first you show them empathy. You show them that you are listening to them, that you realize how they're feeling or thinking, and you can reinforce that with empathic uh, statements with the act of listening. That is just a, a, a people want to know that you're listening to me. So what you can do is use empathic statements. And this is, Empathic state where empathic statements are so powerful. Number one, it tells people I'm listening to you. Mm-hmm. But there's a kind of a side thought here, and that is if you have a shy person and they're on the like the first date and they don't know what to say to the other person, so they can use an empathic statement to talk to the other person. I'll say, Well, you look nice tonight, or whatever or you're feeling happy today, and they say, yeah, I had a good day at work. And so what what that other person can do is use that, I had a good day at work, as an empathic statement and mirror back to them and say, oh, something good must have happened. And they'll say, yeah, I worked on a project. An empathic statement for that was, you must have put a lot of hard work into that project. And they must have, or they wouldn't be happy. You You see how you can spend that whole night conversing with that person, only using empathic statements. And then at the end of the day, the person says, wow, 
that guy's really nice because, you know, he he basically allowed me to talk about myself and he and he listened to me. So that's active listening. And I did that in an experiment on the airplane where I talked to this one lady who was sitting next to me. And I just everything she said, I just used an empathic statement. And she talked for 45 minutes during that flight. And at the end of the flight, I said, you're such a fascinating person. And she, her name was Marianne. I said, Marianne, you're such a fascinating person. I'm glad I met you. She says, well, you are too. And she says, wait a minute. I don't know your name or anything <laughs> about you. So that's active listening. When you use those empathic statements. And it's all, it also helps you if you're a shy person and you want to engage in a conversation with somebody and you don't know what to say. You can always use an empathic statement because that puts the focus and concern on that other person. And reinforcement is you want to continue to use these techniques. You don't want to, to, you know, say something to somebody and then not reinforce it because people need reinforcement. So it's it's a, a it's a matter of habit. You want to get in a habit of doing these things. And then of course empathy is it kind of ties it all together with the empathic statements. And you kind of getting into that person's life. And I know it's difficult at times. It took me a long time to to really get good at this. I mean, really, really good at it. Because I always want to keep the focus on me. So it just takes time. You have to work at it. And if the other person's working at it, you can have a really good relationship. And you can get a lot done. You, you can... You can, you know, even small encounters like job interviews. A lot of people go into job interviews and what do they forget to do? They get all the mechanics of the interview down, but they forget about the nonverbals. And because they're a little fearful when they go into job interviews, they don't use those friend signals. They use the full signals, which tells that person, I'm not a friend. I am a threat. So what I tell the students who go into these interviews, I tell them, make sure that you can eyebrow flash, that you you tilt your head and that you smile and use empathic statements because you have to force yourself to do those things because you don't do them naturally when you're in a uh, stressed out situation uh, when you're stressed out. And so, you know, a lot of people that are shy are stressed out meeting people and they don't they don't give off those friend signals. And the other time this happens is when, for example, I grew up in the city of Chicago on the South side in some dangerous neighborhoods. And so I'd walk around with what I call the urban scowl to let people know, don't, don't get near me. I'm going to be a difficult person to attack successfully. So the predators will go to, you know, softer prey, but I met my, wife, a, a girl, which turned out to be my wife, I met her out in the suburbs and her friends would always say, I, I don't even want to talk to him because it's like he's going to chop my head off or he's going to hit me or say something mean. And she says, no, he's a really nice guy. And she told me that. And then I realized I brought that urban scowl to the suburbs where it's not normally done. So what am I issuing? I'm issuing that I don't stay away from me. I don't like you. And I'll bite your head off if you get near me. 
So I had to adjust when I went out to see my wife. I had to adjust my urban scowl into friend signals. And then that changed the opinion that her friends had of me. So there's a lot of ways that this works. And you can practice in so many ways. Well, we definitely love that idea of practice. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of times people just want to read books and listen to this podcast or consume a video and then think they can magically just turn these things on, but it does take practice. We're not always wired to showcase friend signals with everyone. And oftentimes when we are feeling anxiety, those are the furthest things from our mind. They're the most difficult for us to control. The last part that I love about the empathic statement is that statement of understanding how the other person's feeling and letting them share emotionally with you. We here at The Art of Charm espouse that connection happens when we share emotions. Sometimes we get so caught up in similarities and similar interests and we think that's connection, but those are trickier to find, right? I'm not a Red Sox fan, so I have no interest in getting to know you and your Red Sox, but I also have the emotions of victory from when the Detroit Lions made it in the playoffs umpteen years ago. So (laughs) we can connect on those emotions. We may not be able to connect on the similarities or, or the commonalities that everyone else seems to fall prey to focusing on. And when you're sharing on an emotional level, giving that other person an opportunity to share their emotions, well, that's how they're going to remember you. You made them feel good. They're not going to remember that all that guy did was ask me questions about myself or all that guy did was sit next to me on the plane and, and he happened to be doing X, Y, and Z. They're just remembering how you made them feel. Absolutely. And that's what they're going to walk away with is that emotional feeling. I like that guy. He made me feel good. If I see him again, I'm going to go talk to him again. I want to be near him. I'll make an excuse actually to go see him. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Schaefer. This was awesome. A lot of great content here. Where can our listeners find some of your online trainings if you offer them or uh, if you recommend they check out the book, The Like Switch? Where would you like them to go? The Like Switch is on amazon.com. It's in bookstores. So it's available on Apple and just about any Audible just about any outlet you can get. Can I can I throw in one more uh, tip for shy folks? Absolutely. What happens is when, when you walk into a room or a party and a shy person, an extrovert will just go make friends with people automatically. A shy person won't know who to make friends with or who to approach. The best way to find out who to, to approach is to look at people's feet. Because if two people are sitting toe or standing toe to toe, They have a closed relationship right there. They don't want anybody else to join in. But if their toes are askance and there's an opening, that says that they're open to a new person to walk up and and, uh, enter the group. So it it works with larger groups when they're in semi-circles. You can approach that group easier than if they're in a closed circle. So, you know, you can encourage people to... Look at the feet. In other words, if, if there's room for the feet, you can meet that person. I love it. So, yeah, it's great. So that, that helps out. That helped me out a lot when I, I started going to like embassy parties and, you know, those types of things. And I didn't know who to meet or how to greet people. I looked at the feet and I said, well, I just stepped right up in there. I used some empathic statements. I listened to the conversation. Then I, merged into the conversation using friend signals. And next, next thing you know, we're friendly and we have good rapport. That's great. 
there's a lot of different techniques you can use to uh, help people out. Well, thank you for sharing these techniques with us. Well, I'm going to give you one more. All right. And, and that's it. And that's common ground. How do we, how do we find common ground with people? There's three ways. Extemporaneous common ground. In other words, we share something in common in the instant at the same time. Like you're a White Sox fan. I'm a White Sox fan. We share something contemporaneous. The other way is temporal. We share experiences over time. So I've been to a lot of cities giving lectures. And when I meet people, for example, I ask them, where are you from? They say, Dallas. I can say, oh, I was in Dallas uh, two years ago giving a lecture. So over time, we have a connection. And then the last one and probably the most powerful one is vicarious. If we can't find much common ground, we, 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 make, we make common ground with a third person. Car salesmen use this quite a bit. What they'll do is they'll say, where are you from? Hi, my name is so-and-so. What do you do for a living? Say, I'm a baker. Of course, the car salesman isn't a baker. And so he says, oh, my dad was a baker. And that's how they make that connection vicariously through somebody else. That's fantastic. And you don't have to, if you start talking about baking, say, I don't know. My dad used to come and just powder my nose and give us day old donuts. (laughs) And you can, you, you can, you know, I know so many people that what I can do is say, oh, a friend of mine is an engineer. A friend of mine is a, a, a computer, you know, programmer or whatever occupation there is. So I know enough people where vicariously I can develop common ground with almost anybody and and still be honest and truthful. Well, if I'm not mistaken, I think we flicked your light switch there, Dr. (laughs) Schaefer. Thank you so much for sharing all these tips and tactics with our audience. And I'm excited for them to go employ some of these things on job interviews, social events, and in the off chance that they're interrogating someone. Yeah. Okay. We'll turn the switch off now. (laughs) Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Well, that's a wrap on our conversation with Dr. Jack Schaefer. We hope you'll find a way to test out some of Dr. Schaefer's advice in your own life. And he said, practice, practice, practice. We love practice here at The Art of Charm. And a big shout out and congrats to these guys who are definitely practicing and going out there doing great things. Michael Aguina passed his commercial drone license. Big ups there. Jared Klein started a new job freelancing, which we all know how difficult that jump can be. So congratulations. And also to Simon Coe, who was a panelist dropping some knowledge and speaking about some VR stuff. And if you're there practicing and doing great things, hit us up on social at The Art of Charm. We want to hear about it. And our next episode with Chris Williams is going to be a lot of fun. He has led a very interesting life, and his stories about living with his sister, Vanessa, keeps me happy that I was the older brother. And we talk about what it's like to grow up in the footsteps of an older sibling who has reached some success. Yeah, yeah. He shares some fun stories about going into his auditions and how to overcome that rejection. So we're excited for you to check out next week's episode. As always, a big thank you to our sponsors. Until next time, stay charming. Yeah, remember.